You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is an Australian freelance writer, blogger, and author with more than 20 years professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. And welcome to our podcast. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm here with the lovely Alison Tate. What have you been up to this week, Al? Well, I have been, well, I've been very, very busy. I'm doing some revisions on my manuscript for book two of my children's series, but I've also been spending a lot of time delving into the world of blogs because I'm currently judging the finalists for the Best Australian Blogs competition, looking for my category winner, and it's very, very exciting. Um, and I'm really enjoying it because it's an excellent opportunity to spend time faffing about with blogs. It's a great job, great excuse, isn't it, to just meander oh, in the blog? It gets no better. Absolutely. <laughs> I can honestly and legitimately say that I am working. And there's, you know, really, if people paid me to read all the time, I'd be really happy. And um, any standouts? Can you give us a hint? I'm not giving any hints because I have to say that um, the the – the quality of the blogs that I've been reading is amazing and I've discovered some new ones and that's the beautiful thing about the competition is that it introduces you to categories even that perhaps you haven't um, haven't really looked at before and there's some of the voices out there are, are just incredible and that's what I look for in a blog. I look for a voice that makes me engaged and makes me listen you know like I and it's, it's a really it's a it's an indefinable x factor mm. but the blogs that I'm looking at the moment definitely have it so it's really exciting we should have that the x factor for bloggers I wonder yeah. if that'd be a good reality show well I think it'd be about as exciting as watching <laughs> someone write a book as we <laughs> talked about previously <laughs> But nonetheless, you know, have you been watching that, by the way? I must admit that I have been traveling quite a bit, so I need to catch up on all of my little tasks. Tasks. I can't even speak today because, uh, in fact, I landed this morning from LA after about 30 hours or so because um, of various connecting flights. I had to take three planes and I'm just grateful to be awake, to be honest. I'm pretty impressed that you're talking back to me. I have to say, I did think I was going to sit here with doing myself a little monologue today, which would not have been entertaining for anyone but me, but nonetheless. <laughs> so what did you do? What did you learn? Where did you go? Oh, well, I went to Phoenix uh, to a conference, which, you know, probably for uh, our listeners isn't that exciting because it was on software. <laughs> However, one thing <laughs> that happened on the way there was I was flicking through Qantas in-flight entertainment and there was this great documentary entry uh, called Meet the Presses, and it was all about newspapers and how they're going to adapt or survive or die in the digital age. Okay. And it must it was sleepy time on the plane, you know, the lights are out and everyone's having a little snooze. And I just became so engaged with this documentary because it had a lot of insight into, you know, the industry we're in, that I got my iPad out and I was busy typing away. And, you know, people probably weren't very happy with me. I already had um, <laughs> two people on this trip say to me, are you really angry with your keyboard? Ah, <laughs> oh, you are typing loud and fast. That's yes. not good. <laughs> Just like that scene in that George Clooney movie, Up in the Air, with the girl who types it, you know, angrily at her <laughs> keyboard. So anyway, what was interesting is that um, 
Professor Bill Gruskin from the Columbia School of Journalism, who kind of heads up their digital journalism faculty or whatever it's called, had a lot of interesting things to say in the documentary. And, you know, it's it, he was saying that a lot of newspapers who aren't going to adapt, of course, going to die because the, it's the simple reality that every day, he, his words were, every day people die. And those people were raised on print. And every day new people enter the whole, you know, process and they're just raised on digital so they know of no other kind of um no other way of receiving information they that's that's the only way that they're used to and you know as we get older the people who are used to print or who appreciate print are going to die off so um having said that it wasn't all doom and gloom because it was also discussing about how there is still opportunity for people in print as long as they're doing it the right way and they understand the business model because that's what it's all about really um, understanding how to commercialize it. It's it's all very good and really important to say that, you know, you really need to uphold standards of journalism, which I 100% agree with, and that you need to be able to fund journalism, which I also 100% agree with. But you also need to think outside the square on how you can fund it independently without, you know, compromising any kind of ethics. And I think it's going to be a really interesting world out there over the next couple of years. I, I totally agree with that. And I think that a lot of people do forget that newspapers are businesses, mm. that they're not a community service. And unfortunately, mm. well, uh, it's interesting though, I think, you know, because in the old days when you just got your newspaper and that's what you got and you read that, uh, most people weren't really aware even of the biases involved in mm. newspapers or, and, and they often come from the funding. Um, I think now people are much more savvy about the fact that, um, you know, there, that there is bias in various forms of, of um, broadcasting, news relating, all that sort of stuff, um, which I don't think is a bad thing. I think it's good to know what you're reading. I think it's yeah. good to understand what you're reading. But yeah, you do. It is really important to remember that they're not a charity either. It is a business model, and that's why I think that you know, paying a dollar to to uh, to read the New York Times or to read you know your local newspaper or whatever is is important. It keeps journalists in work and it keeps you know some credibility in news gatherings, which I think is a good thing. Yeah, and in fact, it was citing the New York Times as one of the success stories of when they put their paywall up. You know, they they did immediately get some huge number of I think it was half a million. Um, subscribers so wow. yeah it was it, okay. it was it was a it's it's held up as um quite uh you know a, a situation where it certainly works but anyway what's been happening in the world of uh blogging and publishing this week um let's well, see well i think you wanted to, to have a little bit of a chat about um self-publishing so maybe you want to lead us into that one that's right i did uh come across a great article in the charleston city paper oh, there you go <laughs> and um it was all about how um you know you can forget publishers and agents and that sort of thing these days because there is a whole world of opportunity in self-publishing you know we've seen hugh howie and his success we've seen people who are published by traditional authors as well as self-publishing um we, we've seen a whole heap of sci-fi and fantasy type authors but i think one of the things that people get excited about is that this opportunity is out there but they forget that after you write the book the real hard work begins so we'll put a link in the show notes um but it's basically saying forget agents and big time publishers today's savvy writers are authors of their own destiny and it starts basically saying that with the coming of digital coming of age of digital publishing 
more writers are flocking to this opportunity. And it says here, these writers aren't lemmings, though, jumping off a cliff into the digital ether. No, they are marketing savvy writers. And that is where the key word is, I believe. Yeah, marketing I so savvy writers who yes. understand the opportunities and how you can, you know, um, uh, nurture a readership and more importantly, get them to buy. So it's just a trend that we're seeing more more and more of each week we see new evidence of people who are self-publishing and who are doing it well. That's right. And I mean, Hugh Howie is obviously at the forefront of it. And um, there's been some interesting um, uh, sort of different articles around. Joanna Penn wrote some stuff just in the last couple of weeks on her blog about self-publishing. She went to a big indie publishing conference and she was hanging out with Hugh and various other people. And um, they were discussing this, this notion of of being outliers in the sense of, you know, these big books that come from nowhere and suddenly take over the world. Um, but I think, look, it's one of those situations. I, I'm actually currently in the process of reading Hugh Howie's book, the first one, Wool. Mm-hmm. Um, the print, I've got a print copy of it, which makes me so old school. Mm-hmm. But um, that's just how it works with me sometimes. I, I do read both, but I actually I still prefer a, a print book, you know, for reasons that I read my e-books on an iPad and my arms get sore. Okay. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. Get an iPad mini. I Well, you know, like I, I could possibly have a device for every occasion, but yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to keep myself fairly limited. Um, and I'm really enjoying the story. You know, he writes a great story. Um, and I think that it's – and I can see why – why so many people have flocked to it. Um, I would really like to have been there at the start of his journey to see how that, you know, I would have liked to have watched him from day one mm. to see exactly how it worked. But he writes a lot on his own blog um, about, he, he brought out a report a few months ago, I think it was, about how much people are actually earning in self-publishing mm. and that was a, and, and how much they're earning in traditional publishing. It was a comparison and that causes a huge amount of controversy all over the internet as these things do. Um, so that's definitely worth having a look at. I will put a link to that in the show notes. Um, I think every author has to make the decision about what they want to do yeah. and, and how what's going to work best for them. Yeah. But also uh, if they decide to self-publish, remember it's a whole new journey just to market and sell your book. Well, it's business. It's back to business models, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Now, while I was sitting in Phoenix, I have to say I came across a headline that I thought was a joke, but when I clicked through, it clearly wasn't. And uh, I'm sure it created an even bigger, you know, deal here than, you know, than, than what I experienced in Phoenix. But it was when the Australian Financial Review made a certain boo-boo on their front page, <laughs> including the world, the words, the world is F-U-K-T, <laughs> and including lots of, um, basically headlines that weren't real headlines and it went to press in Western Australia. What happened? Like, what, did it create a massive furor over here? Oh, absolutely. It went off. And the worst part about it for them was the fact that it was their special weekend Anzac Day edition. So it was on sale for days and days and days. And of course, it was one of those things where everybody was just like, how could this possibly happen? But I mean, all it said to me was, I mean, as you and I both know, sub-editors have been out of jobs in newspapers um, and have been, they've been, you know, minimizing numbers, outsourcing sub-editing and I'm sorry, but this is what happens when you don't have someone who actually is looking at every single word really, really carefully. Like it's important. And also underlined to me the importance of um, uh, most of the art directors I've ever worked with. Um, and I, 
I say most because it's not all, used to use Latin for their mm. dummy copy, lorem ipsum. And it was, you know, standard because you could see straight away that it wasn't the real text, you know. Mm. Um, and that's, I think that kind of stuff is really important because this is what, you know, like nobody wants this to happen. And certainly I'm, I mean, you know, it was a terrible thing to happen. I felt very sorry for them in a way. Oh, yeah. But I also thought, you know, come on, guys, you're supposed to be a quality newspaper. <laughs> Yeah, well, I know of a sub-editor who was actually in a job for a newspaper who I will not name. Um, it's a real newspaper, but uh, and it wasn't a newspaper in this country. You know, I've, I've worked overseas as well. And the headline... Um, came out and it was about like a, like a procession, you know, like a really major procession down, down the street on a major day. Mm -hmm. And it was a, you know, a great picture story. It was probably the Sunday paper or something. And it, it was a great success and it was all, you know, fan fabulous and everyone had a good time. And in massive, massive writing of the whole front page of the paper, it said, dazzling debacle works. And that's because oh. the sub-editor thought, Debacle meant the same as spectacle. Oh no! <laughs> True story. <laughs> now that is fantastic. <laughs> the I other thing, you a, a few parades that could have been described. Like that. Well, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, there were a few heads. I think we're going to roll at that particular publication. But um, in the world of uh, you know, writing and um, publishing, we have well, we've all heard of NaNoWriMo, which is National Novel Writing Month, and it, that is in November every year, and um, that's great fun. But now there is Juno Rimo, as if having Nano Rimo wasn't enough. It's actually two two girls, Becca Campbell and Anna Howard, who say that participants and huge fans of Nano Rimo. And on the side, it said Becca got the crazy idea of starting up her own version of a novel in a month adventure in June because November wasn't enough, and started <laughs> tweeting the idea around. Anna tweeted back and Becca asked for her help. And so they've ended up starting Juno Rimo. And um, we'll put the link in the show notes, but basically it's JunoRimo.com. What do you think of Juno Rimo, Al? Well, look, I think it's, I mean, you know, NaNoWriMo has just had Camp NaNoWriMo, which I think is April, is this month. And that's, a, you know, it's a, a similar deal. Look, I, I think it's one of those things that I think anything that gets people writing is a great thing. I mean, NaNoWriMo for me, I've done it for the last... Oh, four years, I think. And I wrote in the first, the first year I did it, I wrote the first draft of, of an adult novel, which I'm working on sending out. I'm hoping to get that ready to send out to um, publishers towards the end of this year. Mm. And I think the third one I did, I wrote the first draft of the, of the first book in my children's series, which is mm. coming out in October. Um, so the first draft, I mean, to me, it is, it is all about getting a first draft down and that's it because 50,000 words from my, in most cases, is not an entire book anyway. Um, but as far as like getting your thoughts on paper and making you write and not edit, mm. it's fantastic. Um, you know, and if you want to do that write, publish, repeat kind of thing that, you know, we were talking about a few months ago, as uh, weeks ago, episodes ago, mm. as being a, you know, a marketing model for self-publishing, then yeah, you know, great. Um, do we need to do two a year? Probably not. <laughs> it's pretty hard work. Like this is the thing. Like I got to the end of November and I, I had to lie down for several weeks because it's hard work, 1,677 day, uh, seventy-seven words a day, I think it is, mm. to get you to 50,000 in 30 days. And 
it, it is it is intensively hard work, but it does build a habit, and I think that's what most people need if they really want to get a book on paper. Did so you actually get to sixteen sixty seven words per day and then stop, or did you vary your word count each day? Or I, I, I have never in my entire life written sixteen hundred and seventy seven <laughs> words a day or whatever. It's just not how I work. I mean, what I did was essentially I did try to sit down every day because um, mm. I'm. You know, I'm usually sitting at my computer, so I can knock out, you know, open up a Word document and knock out a couple of hundred words if necessary, if that's all I do all day um, on that particular project. Uh, no, I tend to run in chunks. Like I will sit down, I will do 2,000 or 3,000 and then do 200. And then I will do 2,500 and then do 500. You know, that's, that's just, yeah. I find the effort of pushing out a huge chunk um, requires me to have a rest day. <laughs> it's, like an it's like an exercise thing, you know. It's like it's like you're building a muscle. It's like a writing muscle. And and they always say with exercise that you should have a day in between. And I honestly, that's how I work. It's really funny. It's, um, but everyone everyone works in different ways. I, I have to say, this morning I actually went to. Um, a place in Sydney to have a look at some treadmill desks. So oh. I'm just wondering if you actually like churned out the 1667 words while also being on the treadmill, would you need two days off? I would, I would need a week off. I can't, <laughs> I can't actually, I don't think that I could type and write at the same time. I think, I, I don't know, I think that probably makes me somewhat uncoordinated, but I just, <laughs> I just don't think that I have it in me to, to do that. I, I like to sit. Right, and then walk. That's oh. kind of how I am. <laughs> well, I'll let you know if I get the treat. I had a go yeah. on it. It was really fun, actually. And I practiced some typing to see if it would work. I think I need to have a bit more of a go to see whether it's right for me. But um, I have to admit that uh, apart from going to a software conference in Phoenix, I did sneak in um, a trip, a weekend in Vegas. Um, oh, look at and- you. <laughs> And and I'm admitting it because I'm actually going to write a story, a travel story on it called, <laughs> interestingly enough, Weekend in Vegas. Um, <laughs> I am bowled over by the originality of that title. <laughs> what can I say? Well, it's better than calling it The Hangover 4 or something. But, yeah. <laughs> but um, uh, you also sent me an interesting link about travel writing cliches. So tell us a bit about that. Well, I think you should name your um, story The Breathtaking Views and Best Kept Secrets of Vegas because (laughs) those are um, apparently among the most hated travel writing cliches. Um, According to a blog called Made with Ink, which is a blog about making magazines from people who make magazines. So these are people who are actually receiving your travel stories Mm. and they, the London office got together and discussed a definitive blacklist of uh, travel writing cliches that they think everyone in the known universe should avoid forevermore. Yeah. Um, breathtaking views and best kept secrets being the top two. Mm. But they also mentioned land of contrasts, which of oh, course that's comes a, up. Yeah, Something for everyone, which I, you know, like you have read, when did you last read a travel story that didn't have that in it? Um, winding cobbled streets, leaving <laughs> the modern world behind. Oh, and this is one, I've got to say, the reason I really sat up with this story was this number eight, which is the word nestled. And I absolutely cannot stand it in travel stories. I worked for a while at the Sydney Harbour Foreshore Authority. I was their publications coordinator. And I used to write all the newsletters and all the advertising campaigns and everything for the rocks. And when I first started there, every single thing that I read started nestled under the harbour bridge. <laughs> everything. 
And I just said to them, this has got to go. I cannot stand this. It has got to go. So I rewrote pretty much the entire catalogue because I hated the word nestled. Um, so, yeah. But I think everyone should have a little look at those. Because it's a great I, list. It's a really – it's fun and it's fun and funny. And you should avoid them if you're writing travel stories, really. Yeah. If you don't want to sound like a novice, don't start Malaysia. No. is a land of contrast. Vegas and particularly not nestled. Not nestled. Nestled in the desert. Yes. <laughs> okay, so while on the plane, I did read a book, or I've read almost all of it. I haven't quite finished. Um, and it's called Utility by Jay Bear. And it's you, as in Y-O-U, Utility. And uh, I, I will put the link in the show notes. But I thought it was interesting. It isn't, strictly speaking, a book about writing. But what it is is a book about being about how organisations these days need to be useful to people. And the way that's manifest in, you know, being – the way that's manifested is um, in content marketing, in actually answering questions that people ask, in actually, you know, um, writing blog posts that are about issues that people – want to, that your market wants to know about. So even though it was a business book, it really reinforced this trend that we've been talking about in a couple of different episodes, that it also expands opportunities for writers because of this whole um, expanding world of content marketing. In fact, at the conference that I was um, just at, a lot of business owners came up to me because obviously being a writer centered, they wanted some advice on where they could find good writers to write about issues in their industry. So, um, yeah, it's it's another one of those books that has reinforced this whole, you know, explosion in content marketing. Yeah, it is interesting. And it's funny that you should mention it this week because I, I've been following a, a conversation in a, in a blogger forum that I'm a part of mm-hmm. and somebody had written a piece there saying that they, they've obviously, like this is a message that's most definitely getting through to bloggers and to writers and people through various channels. But it is in, in some cases causing paralysis because mm. people are like these are people that have got um, specific types of blogs, you know, whether they be personal, whether they be parenting, whether they be, um, you know, whatever. Um, that perhaps blogs that are more about the the writing of them than necessarily the the um, you know how to wear a scarf, you know, mm-hmm. sort of stuff, which is useful. I've been. I only bring that up because I've been Googling how to wear a scarf all this week. <laughs> I cleaned out my wardrobes and found I had 27 scarves and I don't know how, what to do oh. with any of them. But anyway, that's a whole other story. Okay. This particular person was paralyzed by this notion that her blog posts have to be useful. Mm. And she, she was like, well, that's not really what my blog is about. So how do I, how do I you know, translate that? And I think sometimes um, too much information is is just as difficult for people as not enough. And yep. I think that um, in that sort of instance, like my suggestion was, as it always is, that, you know, if you have a, a, a personal blog or a, or a parenting blog or whatever your kind of blog may be, if it's that mm. sort of thing, mm. you have to write it like no one's reading it. The more mm. uptight you get about what readers are expecting, and, and I know this because I've experienced it myself. You know, I, I go through phases where I think, oh, <gasps> oh my God, I've written, you know, 26 whimsical posts in a, in a row and what do people want from me? And, you know, at the end of the day, I just think, well, they obviously come along because they like what I'm saying. Yeah. They like my writing and so therefore I'll just keep doing that. 
Yeah, true, true. And it's interesting because the world of blogs means it opens it up to all sorts of things. You don't necessarily have to be useful all the time. You can use your blog as a journal. You can use a blog as, you know, a stream of consciousness if you really want to. And that's something yeah. that, you know, we've seen in the finalists of the Best Australian Blogs competition, which is, have been announced this week, which you're yes. currently judging. Which I'm currently judging. And if you want to have a look at the finalists, that's at bestaustralianblogs.com.au. Um, but this week, our writer in residence is Gabrielle Tozer. And, uh, you know, I've, I th- she, her book is The Intern and it's done extremely well. It's mm. a YA, young adult uh, novel, and it's, you know, no doubt drawn from Gabrielle's experience because Gabrielle has um, worked in the magazine industry for several years and she's, you know, her, her book has been compared to The Devil Wears Prada, uh, but it's very much a, a book that is goes behind the scenes of a glossy magazine and um, gives us an insight into that world. And it's already, uh, she's already writing the sequel. Yes. Which so is, I, I love watching that on, on Facebook as people unravel their sequels and things like that as well. But yeah, I'm looking forward to this interview because she has done so well with that first book. Let's talk to Gabrielle. Thanks for joining us today, Gab. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Now, your book, The Intern, is fantastic and it has become very, very popular. Before we get on to, you know, the process of writing the book and the marketing of the book, tell, just for some of the listeners who haven't read it yet, tell us what the book is about. So, The Intern is a young adult novel, so it's targeted at teen girls and older. Basically, it follows the adventures of Josie Browning, who's 17 years old. And she's a little little dorky, little awkward, um, but quite lovable. And she manages to nab herself an internship at a glossy magazine. And it just follows her crazy adventures as she battles her way through that and has to deal with a powerful editor. Yeah, just a bit of fun, a, a bit of a fun read. And were you ever an intern at a glossy magazine? I've been in, I've done a lot of interning and work experience over the years at a number of different titles, but never one quite as glossy, I suppose, as the as the magazine that I've portrayed in the novel. But I have worked at those types of magazines. So there are some people who are obviously drawing parallels with the Devil Wears Prada. Uh, is it is it similar in that in that vein? Look, while it's really flattering that people have compared us, because obviously it's both set in magazines, uh, this is a slightly younger story. It's targeted at a younger audience, and it doesn't have quite as much of a fashion focus. It's it's more focused on the underdog and um, her family background and suppose the love interest. So there's definitely similarities in that it's set in magazines, but I think it I think the similarities probably end there. That's but it right. is very flattering when people compare it. Them. <laughs> well, yeah, it got made into a movie with, you know, Meryl Streep. It's fantastic. Um, so tell us a bit about your background in magazines then. Just a sort of in a nutshell, what have you been working on in terms of your own career? Oh, look, in a nutshell. So I've been getting published in magazines for about 10 years, um, starting out in street press, like mainly 
music entertainment journalism. And then once I got my first full-time job at a glossy magazine, that was at good old Disney Girl and Disney Adventures magazines. I was the chief sub-editor there. I went and moved into roles and writing for places like Dolly Magazine, Cosmo, I've written for Girlfriend, including um, a bunch of other mags as well, like Health and Lifestyle, everything from, oh goodness, everything from Mother and Baby to Prevention Magazine. So just racking up a lot of notches on, on the magazine belt. And when did you decide, look, I really want to turn my hand to fiction. And, and, and how did the book, The Intern, get started? What inspired it? Look, I'm one of those dags that's known that what they've wanted to do is that from a really young age. So like, I've wanted to be an author since I was six years old, as well as being a journalist as well. I had a very ambitious young child. Um, so it's always been in the back of my mind. I studied journalism and creative writing at uni. Um, and I think it was just a matter of when I'd finally start, not if I would. So what happened was I actually met a uh, publisher at a course that I was doing and she was a non-fiction publisher so it didn't really, um, wasn't my cup of tea but we hit it off and she, uh, without her telling me, she actually recommended me to an, a fiction publisher and that's where this crazy adventure all began and next minute I found myself pitching stories and that's where the, um, that's when the seed was planted for the intern. I suggested the idea, they liked it and next minute I was writing sample chapters. <laughs> Great. And so you just said that you were pitching stories. So was the intern one of several story ideas that you pitched to them? And did they say, okay, we actually like that one? Or how, how did that all come about? Right. So I didn't want to put all my eggs in one basket. This is like as a writing newbie. I wasn't quite sure how the whole process works. So I thought it was best to give them a few. So I pitched them, I think, three or four, all young adult. I think there's maybe one children's idea in there as well because my publisher looks after both. Mm. And they were all stories that I would have been really happy to write. Like I was passionate about all of them. And they came back and there was two that they loved the most. And the intern or what would soon become the intern was one of them. And there was another one that they liked as well. Um, and then they said, look, we'd like, we'd be happy to see some sample chapters for either of these up to you. And so I asked myself what I felt ready to write, and that was definitely the intent. I think for my first novel, I jumped into that whole cliche of write what you know, but then I wanted to exaggerate that and have a lot of fun with it. Um, so it was a good place to start, but it was it was um, encouraging to know that there's other ideas beyond that that they're in, interested in as right. well. So, yeah, I was just... Very exciting process. So people are often interested in the actual process. So can you take us through when did that conversation occur, like when you pitched the story ideas to the publisher, they said, oh, look, we like these ones. And then how long did it take for you to write the sample chapters? And then once they said, said yes, how long did it take to write the book? And then, you know, when did it come out? So can you actually just kind of take us through the journey? Oh, yeah, this not wanting to scare anyone off how long the process is. <laughs> it's um, definitely not for the faint-hearted if you're impatient like me. I'm trying to cast my mind back. So it was, it all, this all began in 2011. However, I had met my, the publisher that began this years before that. We just stayed in touch. So 2011, I think it was about September or August that I pitched them some ideas. Yep really briefly, like a paragraph each. 
Then they were like happy to hear about the intern. I wrote some sample chapters. They loved those. Um, next minute I knew I was having to write some more. How long did you take to write the sample chapters? I'm a bit of an all or nothing writer at times, so I bashed them out pretty quickly, I must admit. Probably it was within a month. Mm-hmm. It's four chapters that I um, – and look, it's – it's, there's not so much a formula you can follow because, you know, everyone's chapters are different lengths, but I just aimed for four, which from the top of my head, I think it was like seven or 8,000 words mm-hmm. and sent, and then edited them a lot before I sent them through. Um, having worked as a writer and as a sub-editor, that I knew that self-editing before showing them was really important. So I got that sent off. Once they were happy to see more, I suddenly started self-sabotaging, was completely terrified by the process <laughs> and, need, and needed them to set me a deadline. Like they were happy for me just to send in chapters whenever I was comfortable, but I'm so used to working to a deadline, I actually begged them to give me one. So the next minute I knew, they were like, let's get, let's get it through to us really soon. So I found myself pumping out an entire manuscript, which ended up being 80,000 words within about five months, Um, which is crazy because I was working full time. And this is what I mean about not always, perhaps don't follow exactly what I do because it can be a bit all or nothing and all consuming. But then I spent about a year before showing them um, self-editing, maybe under a year maybe more like eight, nine months, self-editing. Then I showed them and I had to send it to them. Um, why did you take a year? I think it was about... To, sorry to interrupt, but why did you take a year to, to go through that self-editing process, especially when it took you five months to pump it out? Because the reason it took me five months to bash out 80,000 words because I follow the mentality of write because you can't just write it because you can't edit a blank page. So the writing was very raw and it needed a lot of work before it was ready to show anyone. But it's kind of like I needed to, that was me just getting my story out. Um, So all up with like writing it and putting it together was probably like just over a year in total. Mm -hmm. And then I sent the manuscript to them in about June 2012. I'm trying to remember. I'm trying to get my timeline straight. I think I've missed my. I think I've done something wrong here. 2013. But, I, I think. If you, if you, yeah, that 2013 makes sense. Oh, well, it mustn't. I must have. I mustn't have taken a year to edit it then, because I, yeah. in August 2012, I found out that they were going to buy it, and then they offered me a two book deal and uh, the rest as they say is history so I must have mustn't have taken quite as long as I've imagined pumping out the editing it just maybe just feels longer because the process has been going on and considering it's been going since 2011 it's um, all become a bit of a blur okay so um, it's now 2014 when did the book come out so the book came out beginning of this year right. um, so officially February 1st, but it it started appearing on bookshelves in January. So so what happened in 2013? That was editing with them. Great. That was the editing. That was, so that was, this is the part of the process that I suppose you don't even think about before this whole journey begins is you write the book, you self-edit it, you put it all together, and then it's almost like once they've read it, 
it's almost like the process begins again. And so, which I actually really enjoyed because um, you're working with wonderful, experienced editors who I had the wonderful uh, Nicola O'Shea, who's just a name in the industry. So I was very lucky to work with her. And basically, they then do a structural edit and that's when they mark up your book and it comes back to you covered in little pencil markings with suggestions, which you're allowed to decline, you're allowed to accept as well. And basically, your book is turned into a million puzzle pieces and shuffled around until it fits perfectly. Um, so t- 2013 was the year of the epic edit. It was... <laughs> intense it was intense I won't lie there was some there were some tough moments in there but what an experience and so once the structural edits down then there's another edit with proofreaders and then that goes on and on this is what I mean about it's a for one book if only you just have no idea I had absolutely no idea how many people were involved or how many stages are involved per person like it ends up being a cast of thousands I might get my name on the front but there's a lot of names inside for good reason that I think (laughs) did you think it was going to take that long to edit I didn't even know the whole thing caught me unawares to be honest like I think I was in shock for perhaps the first (laughs) year of the Um, and I'm working on the sequel at the moment and that's been an entirely different process as well, like with a much shorter turnaround and timeline. Um, but I think they were just comfortable. Like I think they were taking a chance on me. Um, they didn't have anything to, you know, if it worked out, it was good for them. If it didn't work out, then they didn't have to worry. So I think we had the luxury of time and that's why despite being able to hand in my manuscript to them in 2012, they were happy to sign it because I wasn't on their cards for coming out until 2014. We had this luxurious year of editing and I'd I'd get kind of more time to perhaps do my turnarounds for proofing than I'll probably get for the second book. So I think it's just books, it's very much a case-by-case basis. Yeah, definitely. Is it hard to sustain your interest over such a long, drawn-out period, especially when you wrote it already in 2012? Look, I don't think it's, I don't find it hard to sustain my interest. I find it hard to sustain my energy. (laughs) Um, um, Interest though, no, I think that's why, like I genuinely do love the world that I've created. It's a lot of fun and same with the character, like it's quite a lot of fun to write. So the the interest hasn't waned. You do get a little tired having to reread the same sentences over and over again and you lose perspective a little which is why it can be good to then get that distance from in between edits but I think I'm just lucky that I enjoyed the world I created although it's the energy the energy maintaining that energy over a couple of years is exhausting I still haven't quite worked out that secret yet when you first started did you know what was going to happen to your character as in did you know all the various plot points this is what was going to happen then you know and so on or did you kind of just um start writing and see what happens oh yes point two hundred percent so I am what the lovely Alison Tate calls a pantser. Um, Probably not an extreme, I'm not an extreme pantser. So what my process is, I get a notebook and I jot down as much as I 
off the top of my head, as much as I can think about the world, about the character, about scenes that I can imagine coming up. And usually my first few chapters are really cemented in my mind. So I'm not a complete pantser. I just I don't open up a Word document and just begin. I kind of have a beginning. Um, but then once I've started writing, then I switch into pantsing mode and all kinds of marvellous, weird things start happening on the page. Um, every now and then I seem to run out and I've got nothing left. So then I get the notebook back out. And through that process again. And that leads me to, that leads me in a direction. And what I've found, and who knows, my process could change over the years, but with both of these books, it's usually around halfway through that I start, I get a real sense in my gut about what I want to happen at the end. Mm -hmm. And I just gently start steering it in that direction. Um, This process is good for me because as a former sub-editor, I am prone to perfectionism and overthinking and self-sabotaging. So, you know, wanting to perfect everything before it's a, you've even got the idea out. So this kind of helps me just to, I don't know, let it flow a little bit more, like, you know, turn the tap on, as they say. Sure. But what it does make difficult is there is a lot of rewriting at yeah. the end. Like, so once that first done, there is a lot of rewriting to be done. So I'm sure that there's some happy medium that I'll learn as I get older, um, but all in good time. Well, obviously you're doing you're obviously doing something right because the book has done really well and I understand it's in reprint. Tell us how, about how the book has gone so far. Oh, look, it's been a wonderful year. I'm, oh, my head's up in the clouds, to be honest. I, I don't think you think past holding the book in your hands. Like I know I... I kind of was forgot that other people would be reading it. That, that sounds so ridiculous. But when you've wanted to do it for so long, it, you kind of start thinking about it selfishly. Like you just imagine yourself holding it and then all of a sudden you're getting tweets and emails and Facebook messages and selfies of people holding your book. And it's, oh, it's really it's quite strange. The feedback's been really great. Um, so I wrote this primarily with teen girls in mind. I love that readership. I love that demographic. But I've been really excited to see that there's people in their 20s, 30s, up to like their 60s reading it and just having having a laugh and, you know, unleashing their inner teen girl as well, which has been fun. Right. Um, yeah, it's been it's been wonderful. I'm, I'm still just trying to wrap my head around the whole process, though, to be honest. And it's, it's been released in, in other countries? So, yeah, so far they've locked in um, the German world translation rights, which is really exciting. I was told that news last year. So that was before it had been in Australia. So the a German version will, of the intern will be on shelves early next year. So that it'll come out the same time the sequel comes out in Australia and New Zealand. Um, so, yeah, that's really, I can't wait to see that, that cover as well. I imagine it'll be a whole new whole thing. <laughs> yeah, so not only in German, it's already gone into reprint. Now, that is not least because you've been quite clever in making sure that it gets out there, that some you've, you've done some marketing for it. Can you tell us a little bit about that strategy so that maybe some other authors can see what authors can do to get the kind of exposure because you've got a lot of press for it, so which is great. Tell us what how you think you've gotten all that press. Okay, so I'll just start by saying that if you're with a publishing house, then you will have a publicist. So absolutely some of the things that have come for me have been through my publicist 
artists and my marketing team, they put together an amazing marketing campaign that helped me get a lot of press and a lot of interest from the blogging world. Um, however, having worked in the media for so long, I suppose I put my journalist hat on and thought, what would I like to receive as a journalist and what would help, what would I consider putting in a magazine? So I basically sat down and thought, well, first of all, we'll need some nice photos. So if I can, point one would be get some really nice professional photos taken, the kind that you can imagine running in a newspaper or a magazine, because even if you've got the best story ever written, if, they, if there's not an image to run with it, and that'll really reduce your chances of being mentioned. Um, get a great website going. Like, it's this is one of those things where you have to pay for it as the author. You know, you have to, I just sucked it up, paid for it, got a professional to do it. I'm not a designer by any means. And so you want to be able to send people to your website to find out more about you and include some kind of press kit on there as well with all the information, um, whether it's down to the synopsis of your book, to the the price with more photos of you, pictures of your cover, just basically make it as easy for the media to write about you as possible. Think of everything that you'd include and, and put it on this one page. Right. Um, and before the book comes out, you need to remember that media organi organisations, especially magazines and newspapers, but more magazines, have long lead times. Yes. So say your book's coming out in January, you need to start thinking about this back in October the previous year um, and maybe like just write a list down of places that you think are relevant to your book. Who are the kinds of people that are reading it? Um, actually put together some kind of spreadsheet or document and the contacts and make sure your publicist has that. Like if they're able to take care of all this for you, then that's wonderful. Mm -hmm. If they're not, then there's no harm in you putting together a little thing yourself and dropping them a line or following up perhaps on more on a more personal level. But I think it's really important to target places appropriately. Mm -hmm. So there's no point targeting a magazine like Girlfriend if your book's targeted at 50-year-old women. So it's just really thinking about your audience, and that's one thing that's really helped me. I think it's kind of, and I, you know, you, I've been declined by lots of places as well, and you know, same with my publicists. Like we've we've tried, and you don't, people don't always say yes. But I suppose I suppose it's just like don't be afraid to hear no as well, yes. um, because you'll never know what things will lead to. Like someone over here might say no, but then you might have done something else earlier, and then someone else likes that, so they go, oh, we might cover her as well, and. Yeah, it's been, it's, you've just got to put yourself out there, I suppose, and just be as professional as possible. And I know it's hard, like this marketing self-promo side, it feels very strange. But I think these days as an author, it is a hat that you have to wear mm. um, to build a profile, as weird as it feels. Like I'd love to be able to just close down all my social media accounts and just, you know, hibernate. But I think it's just... Every, like your readers are out online and they want to be able to talk to you <laughs> as well. So you've got to maintain that kind of like social media presence as well. But I will say just I know I'm t giving lots of information here, but I think you need to remember to bring value mm. to 
your social media as opposed to just promote, promote, promote. Of course. Um, I love how you speak yeah. about this whole thing, which is which is great. And it's so true. The writers can't just sort of sit in their in their garrets and, and, and write away. They need to actually be responsible for promoting themselves as well. So tell us what when can we expect the intern to and also what <laughs> are you working on now? Alrighty, so the sequel to The Intern, which there actually isn't a title yet, that'll hopefully be able to be announced later this year. Great. It'll be out early next year, out on shelves early next year, which I'm still in the um, the editing stage of that with my publisher, so that's exciting. A lot of work to be done, though. Um, and I have a another couple of ideas brimming away in my mind, so... I think I might be at that point that I was at back in 2011 where I'd send them off an email <laughs> with about four ideas and, and see what jumps out at them as well because I'm equally passionate about them all but I'm not quite sure which is the right one. So we'll okay. see if they can – yeah, so I've got a lot kind of going on but having written one book and edited a book and worked full-time all at the same time mm-hmm. last year, I'm a bit more conscious about the timing now. It's like – can't do everything, got to try and learn the art of work-life balance as well. Maybe what we can do is end with your advice on that because a lot of people say, oh, look, I have a full-time job. I can't possibly write a book, but you did it. So what are your tips on that? When did you fit in time to write and what's your advice to people on how to be able to juggle that? Because that's reality when you're starting out. It is, and and it's a tough reality, and I don't think I quite knew what I was getting into, but it is worth it in the long run. So my first piece of advice would be you need a routine. Like As ideal as it would to be able to just write whenever inspiration strikes, that is not going to cut it if you want to meet your deadline for the for a publisher or for you to be able to hand in a manuscript. So for me, it was in the mornings. This makes people sick. 5.30 a.m., I'd get up, <laughs> put in... Put in about an hour or two before work, and then I'd go and do a full day work. Then I'd have my nights off, and then I'd work chunks of time on the weekend, but still have still have my breaks. So that worked for me. The alarm would go off at the same time every day. Wow! Um, and I just yeah, so that was tough, but it, it got it done. Um, other people might prefer to do it after work if you're working full time, but I I just found I was too wiped. Um, to be able to do that. Um, so that's probably the main one. But I suppose it's one, for me, it's, I can look back and think of things that I wish I had done to make it easier as well. Um, so I think you still need to really look after yourself. Like it's easy just to throw your, everything into this one project, but you need to remember that, you know, you've got to still look after yourself, you've got to eat well, give yourself mm. energy, that kind of thing exercise, that kind of dropped off for me when I think it actually would have helped me, give me more energy throughout the process Um, and keep living your life. Like the more, if you've got deadlines, it can be hard and you can um, think, oh, I can't do that. I I don't have time. But you need to make sure you're getting new experiences and meeting new people and that type of thing to, for future inspiration, for stories and that. So um, the the search for balance is hard and it's something that, Toward, coming towards the end of writing my second book, I think I'm still learning myself. I think it might take a while. As long as I'm having to juggle the two, the two lives, um, I think it it is a difficult one. I'm sure. But it, don't be afraid to ask for help as well. If there's people in your life who love you, don't be afraid to 
to let them know if you need an extra hand as well. Sure. Well, it's obviously working for you, Gab, So, um, because the intern's doing really well. Can't wait for the sequel. Um, and no doubt there'll be many other story ideas and books to come. Thank you so much for your time today. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Val. It's been a pleasure. Well, that was Gab Tozer. Always great to talk to her too. She's very, she's so bright and bubbly and she's, you know, so interested. I mean, as you say, the experience that she has in that area yep. is obviously, you know, well reflected in the book, which, yep. um, which I'm reading at the moment. Yep. So there you go. Great fun. Now, our app pick for this week, which I think is totally fun, is called noisely.com and that's N-O-I-S-L-I.com. We'll put a link in the show notes. But basically, it's an app where, you know how um, recently we spoke about an app called Coffitivity, which is an app where you can, you know, if you want some ambient noise, if you don't like the dead silence while you're writing, you it's a noise of a cafe in the background. Yes. Well, this is a similar app, except in, in addition to having cafe noise, it's also got if you prefer the noise of rain or it has a noise of a background thunderstorm (laughs) or it's got leaves rustling or waves or just nighttime sort of crickets or if you really like just white noise it's got three different pictures of white noise or if you really want you can combine them and put the night white noise with the thunderstorm And already my mind is just going round in circles going, okay. I waste a lot of time with this app because I use the one which is a forest. Um, Yes, because there's sort of like birds chirping and forest animal noises. And I have to admit, I put it on just to entertain myself to see how my cat Rocky reacts. And That's he, cool. He's looking. He's looking for for birds that don't exist, isn't he? I know, but it's so cute. Oh wow! That's cool. Well, I have to say that I I just can't think of anything worse than than any of that. I I have to. I sit here all day by myself in complete and utter silence, and I like it. Okay. Well, in that case, we'll move on to what yep. is our working writer's tip this week. Well, it's actually, it's an interesting one. It's, it's something that uh, a lot of, because ed- I, I know a lot of editors and they talk about this quite, quite regularly and that is the importance of actually reading the publications that you want to write for. Oh. I think that um, a lot of freelancers think, I've got an idea that will suit 18-year-old or 21-year-old women, I'll send it to Cleo, mm. without ever actually picking up a copy of Cleo mm. to see what Cleo is doing now because the last time you read Cleo may have been 10 years ago. Yes. And Clio now is quite a different magazine to what Clio was 10 years ago. Yeah. And this is something that came up a lot. I, I wrote an ebook towards the end of last year called Get Paid to Write. And it's all about tips for freelancers and how I go about things and how to find case studies. And it's probably more insight into my brain than anybody ever needed. Um, <laughs> but I get a lot of people who say to me that they want to pick my brains. Well, this is it. There it is. Have a look at it. It's right there. Yeah. And one of the things I did was I interviewed um, – editors of, you know, working editors of current publications about what they look for in freelancers, like what makes a great freelancer for them. And they were all extremely generous with their time and gave me fantastic answers. And one of the things that comes up with them over and over again is we want a story that is written for us. And that's uh, the, the importance of that when you're pitching anything is so important because, you know, it's, it's again, let's, let's use Clio as an example again, Clio versus Cosmo. Now, people will send exactly the same story to both of those publications, but in actual fact, they require tweaking. 
they're not the same. And, you know, you can, you can pitch the same, like, like if it gets knocked back by one, you can pitch it to another, but you cannot send the same pitch. No. You have to think about what is it that this publication requires from this particular subject. And the chances are that it will be different to whoever you sent it to before. And until you actually match up the publication with the pitch, you will not get the job. And that, you know, you won't find out what that publication is all about unless you read it. And when when I say read it, I mean read at least six back issues. Yeah. See, see what, they, what they're doing, what they've already published, because that's the other thing. There's nothing worse than, sent, than being a features editor and receiving... A, a, a pitch for a story, you know, two weeks after you've published a magazine that has that same story in exactly, it. You know? Exactly, exactly. Um, really, really important. I mean, Ida, you, you've worked as an editor. You must have seen this stuff before. Yeah, definitely. And where can we get your ebook? Ah, you can buy it on my website. I'll put the link in the show notes. Um, and, of course, it's amazing, like, really. <laughs> of course. Well, I've of read course. it. I've read it and it is amazing. Anyway, <laughs> that brings us to the end of our podcast this week. So what are you up to until we next speak? Uh, well, I'm, I'm judging blogs, obviously, which is great. So uh, when I'm faffing around on the internet talking to people on Twitter, I'm judging blogs. And the other thing that I'll be doing is uh, the I'll be doing some copy editing because I have copy edits of my book one for ah. my children's series um, landing on my desk at the end of this week. So whilst I'm... It, uh, so, so whilst I'm sort of redrafting book two, I'll be copy editing book one, which is very exciting. And what's that? What's the book called again? Um, the series is called the Mapmaker Chronicles, and I'm going to be. I've got. The, I'm hoping to have a cover in a couple of weeks, and I will put out a um, a full blog post and all the details and all the publication dates and everything in that. So I will keep you posted. Will you be including the maps? I know that might sound like a dumb question, but I no, love well, maps. It, it's an inter- It is an interesting. Oh God, so do I. That's why I've written the book. Um, I, um, it, well, obviously that the publisher and I are in the process of talking about all the different things that we may do. And uh, again, I'll have more details about that once I have more details. <laughs> Stay tuned, everyone. Stay tuned, well, exactly. In the meantime, I will be attempting to fend off jet lag and deciding whether or not to get a treadmill desk. So, um, <laughs> may have a decision by the next episode. Um, in the meantime, we would love to hear from you. If you um, would like to contact us, email podcast at writers center.com.au you can find allison at alisontate.com me at valeriecoo.com and of course these podcasts you'll be able to find transcripts of the interviews and everything at writerscenter.com.au slash podcast and um thank you to everyone who has left a review on itunes we really appreciate it um it's been great to hear from you and we did we have reached um at this stage number 42 in uh all itunes i'm sorry in all podcasts in australia so Fantastic. thank you so much for your support really appreciate that well there we go clearly i need to get <laughs> you need to go and have a lie in from la we really appreciate <laughs> that and this is probably a good note to end on See you next time. Bye.